Last week I began what I said is not really a series as much as it's a theme over the next three weeks, last week, today, and next week as it relates about this is all about us. And I told you, for those of you that are into the chronology of the Bible, if you thought that uh, last week, you know, we were already talking about a topic that had happened after Jesus had entered in Jerusalem, uh, today we recognize we're celebrating the triumphant entry of the Lord, but I'm already going to be talking about what took place on the cross on Good Friday, and then next week we'll be right there together in the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So uh, for those of you that are a little biblically OCD, I'm sorry. Uh, there's just a lot that takes place in this, and today I would like to talk to you about words from the cross, words from the cross. Father, we're so grateful that you have received our praise this morning. We have much to be grateful for. You have redeemed us. And Father, today there may be some that are here or those that are watching online that cannot make that declaration, but within the next few moments they're going to be given an opportunity to have their eternity completely changed around because of your presence and your word. And so I pray that you would allow us to understand, hear, and respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a man by the name of Barnaby Conrad who wrote a book called Famous Last Words. And over the course of 200 and some pages, he recorded the last words of people right before they were going to die just so that we could have a record of them and a little bit about what they thought. And they were people from historical times all the way to modern times. And in fact, he gives us the last words of Buddha before he was dying in 483 B.C. Talking to one of his disciples, he had these famous words, never forget it. Decay is inherent in all component things. In other words, what a joyful thought. We're all going to die, and we're all going to decay. Then there was Queen Elizabeth I dying in 1603. That The Archbishop of Canterbury was reciting to her at her death all of the things that she had accomplished over her reign, and she waved her hand and stopped him, and she goes, all of my possessions for one more moment of time. Nathan Hale, as many of you who are... Uh, understanding of history, captured behind British lines during the American Revolution, was hanged. And he said, what a pity it is that we can die but once to serve our country. And then for those of you that love circuses, maybe you have heard about P.T. Barnum's last words. What were the receipts today? <laughs> Begin to give you an idea of where his mind was. But the great American evangelist D.L. Moody on his deathbed in 1899 suddenly began to speak these words. He said, earth recedes, heaven opens, I've been through the gates, don't call me back. If this is death, it is sweet. And then he yelled, Dwight, Irene, which were the names of his dead grandchildren. I see the children's faces. And with that, he entered into the Lord's presence. What a wonderful difference it makes for us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so in the Gospels, we have written for us seven words from the cross. As Jesus was dying on the cross, these are the things that he uttered. Number one in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. In Luke 23, 43, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. John 19, dear woman, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? John 19, 28. I am thirsty. 
Luke 23, 46, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And in John 19, 30, he said, it is finished. Interesting enough that in each of the Gospels, they don't all record all seven of these, but when you put them together, we begin to have a window where we are looking through the eyes of Jesus and we see into the soul of the Savior. And it, there's something in each of these statements where clearly... Not only is he speaking to those that are within hearing distance of the cross, we understand it because he's talking about us. He is talking about us. And I would like to spend just a few moments this morning as we go through each of these words and what they mean to us today. The first one is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing in Luke chapter 23. Jesus addresses the Father in one of the most tremendous moments of pain in his life indicating that there has been a special relationship between he and the Father from the beginning. All through the life of Jesus, he lived in conscious recognition of this unity that he has with the Father. In fact, if you remember back to when he was just a boy at the age of 12, when he had gone to the temple and he was caught there, he said these things, and it's the first recorded words of Jesus that we have when he says, Do you not know? that I must be about my father's business. So Jesus lived with this conscious recognition of God the Father and he together in this special relationship. In fact, as you look to the Old Testament, rarely is God called father. And yet Jesus oftentimes refers to his father as father because of the relationship that they have together. He says, Father, forgive them. I look at them and say, I wonder who Jesus was talking to. You see, closest to him, around the foot of the cross, would have been the execution party. Soldiers of the Roman garrison, motivated by discipline and cruelty. They were under strict instructions from the Roman governor that if they failed to cooperate in the execution, it would have meant instant death for them. They were involved. They crucified the Lord of glory. There also was around that group some of the people that I talked about last week when we were talking about the teachers and the chief priests and the elders that were standing around just making sure that everything that they had hoped would happen would take place. And so they were watching all of this, and they heard him when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. In the distance, perhaps, was Pilate in his palace trying to calm himself from the circumstances and his conscience from being blamed in everything that was taking place because he knew that there had been a farce of a trial and the, the man had been innocent. And so these were the ones that heard the words of Jesus, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. But you and I today would like to think that those words extended a little bit farther than the wider body of people than those that were there. Because I believe today that the reason that we celebrate today, the reason that we were able to worship is because of the forgiveness of the Father that stretches from that cross and reaches all the way to where we are today. Father, forgive us because we don't know what we were doing. This tells me that he was speaking to groups that were actively involved in his crucifixion as well as passively involved in his crucifixion. They were all guilty, but in a very real sense, we were all guilty, and we are all guilty as well. And we are the representatives of the wider number of those that are responsible for crucifying Jesus because the message of the Bible is that the sin of the world 
crucified the Savior. And as we look at this, we recognize this. Jesus died forgiving. Jesus died forgiving. The whole act of crucifixion, the saving act of crucifixion was in fact a symbol of His divine forgiveness. Not only to those that were directly responsible, but it reaches all the way to us today for every human being. These words from Christ are about us. And on the cross, Jesus teaches us something about forgiveness. The difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness does not require the involvement of both parties. Just the one who's giving it. You see, I can and I must ask for forgiveness but it doesn't necessarily mean that the person that I asked it of will give it, but it was offered anyway. You would think in a moment like this that Jesus could have threatened, he could have retaliated, he could have resented, but Jesus, in these words of the cross, chose to forgive. And when he forgave, he picked up the tab for us of something that we couldn't do. Therefore, we have the word of Paul speaking as an echo from the cross in Ephesians 4.32 when it says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The second words from the cross were, today you will be with me in paradise. It's interesting that the first words that Jesus spoke from the cross were all-encompassing. And yet, in this horrible act of crucifixion, there is this moment of forgiveness where the second thing Jesus says reduces the world down to a single individual who is being crucified near him. In other words, my forgiveness extends to all generations, but also not only the world, but to an individual. In Luke 23, 43, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Today you shall be with me in paradise. The criminal to whom this word was given and this remarkable conversion takes place while he's on the cross demonstrates to us some remarkable faith, some things that we in our life should certainly be able to imitate. First, we recognize that he had a full knowledge of his sin. In fact, it tells us in the Scripture, he says, He's talking to the other criminal on the other side of Jesus, and he's telling him, listen, we are being punished justly. We are getting what we deserve. In other words, he goes, I know exactly who I am. I know exactly what I've done. You know exactly who you are, and you know exactly what you've done. And if we were to list that, we know why we are being punished. But he said, the reason we're here is not anybody else's fault. I can't blame it on anybody. I am who I am because I chose the actions in the course of my life. And he takes full responsibility, acknowledging his own sins. The second thing he demonstrates in faith here is he has an open confession that Jesus is innocent when he is guilty. He says, I know what I've done, but this man has done nothing wrong. In other words, I recognize when I'm with Jesus, I'm in the presence of perfection. The difference between him and the difference between me is like night and day, sun and darkness. He's innocent of everything. And the third thing that this prisoner who's dying because he's guilty recognizes in faith is he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
I, I love the fact that this man in his final breaths recognizes in Jesus someone who can change everything. And he shows us what dramatically faith can look like when you put your faith in Jesus. You say, well, what kind of faith does he have? He has enough faith to think that the man who's dying in the middle cross can remember him when he goes to wherever he's going. In other words, I believe there's an afterlife. I believe that this is not it. And so remember me when you come into your kingdom. He has the kind of faith to believe that Jesus, who is dying right next to him, has a kingdom and recognizes him as royalty within that kingdom. He has the kind of faith to believe that Christ's kingdom is better than anything he's experienced on this earth. And he has the faith to believe that Jesus can give him entrance into that kingdom. And this is the only request that is ever made of Jesus while he hung on the cross. It's a request that Jesus was glad to be able to, gr to grant. In fact, he will gladly respond to any one of us today who would desire to put our faith and trust in Jesus. It doesn't matter what country you're from or what century you're from or what your ethnic background may be. Jesus, on his way to save the world at Calvary, takes time to save an individual who is next to him, and he will save you today. An interesting thing about this particular passage, this interaction, it destroys for us the idea that somehow salvation is through works. If you were to die today and you were to stand before the angel in heaven and the angel asks you, why are you here? What would you say? How would you respond to that? Because any answer that you would give that starts in the first person indicates that you got it wrong. Because if you said, well, I'm here because I, uh, because I believed because I accepted, because I have faith, because I have done. Loved one, there's only one answer that is good enough when we stand there, and that's an answer that starts in the third person, because he, because Jesus, because of what he has done for me. I stand not here on my own, but I stand in the grace of what he has done for me. Alistair Beggs was speaking of what it might look like when this criminal was standing in heaven shortly after this discussion. And he said, we have no greater example in Scripture than this interaction with the thief on the cross next to Jesus. You think about the thief on the cross. He goes, I can't wait to meet this fellow one day when I get to heaven. I'm going to look him up, he said, and I'm going to ask him, how did all of this shake out for you? How did this work out for you? Because a few moments ago in the Bible, you were cussing this guy out with your friend. You were, you were talking bad about Jesus, and you've never been to a Bible study in your life. You've never been baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership. In fact, you never stepped foot in a church. You never gave a penny in tithes and offerings, yet you made it. How are you here? How did you make it here? And he said, the angel of heaven must have said, when this criminal shows up, this thief on the cross, why are you here? And the thief said, well, I don't know. I don't know why I'm here. He goes, what do you mean you don't know? Because I don't know. I don't know how I got here. I just don't know. And the angel says, well, uh, let me get the supervising angel. <laughs> and they go get the supervising angel, and the angel asks the thief, I've, I've got just a few questions for you. 
if you don't mind, just so that we can get this cleared up so that maybe you can go in. Are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? And the thief looks at him and goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've, I've never heard of that in my life. Um, um, okay, let's just jump right to the really important one. Let's go to the doctrine of inerrancy of Scripture. And the guy just stares at him. And eventually, out of frustration, the head angel asks him, on what basis are you here? And the thief stands there with his arms out and he goes, the man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross said I could come. Now, folks, that's the only answer. If you and I don't preach the gospel of the cross to ourselves every day and every day, we will begin to trust ourselves and to trust our experience as my salvation somehow depends on how good I can do it and what I have done to earn these things in Him. And as soon as you get there, it will either lead you to spiritual despair or a horrible kind of spiritual arrogance. Because the only answer we can give is because my sinless Savior died for my sinful soul and today I am counted free because He saved me by His grace. He asked for mercy and He received mercy. He had no time to reform. He had no time to make restitution. He had no time to mature in His Christian confession. He was saved by Jesus' grace alone. And there's one further point about this particular scene at the cross that we need to make mention of, and it's a solemn one. You see, there were two thieves that were crucified next to Jesus. There was the one who repented, and there was the one who didn't. You see, the time of decision came for both of them, and only one of them chose Jesus. That's important because I don't care how long you've attended church or how long you may have listened online, that decision comes for every one of us, and our eternity will be based on what we do with Jesus and the decisions that we make. The third word was, woman, behold your son. It comes from the cross in John 19, 26 and 27. Woman, behold your son, and, the, to, the, and to the disciple John, behold your mother. John lets us know that there were four women at the cross that day. There was the mother of Jesus, Mary, her sister, and then there's Mary, the wife of Clopas, and then there's Mary Magdalene. So there's three, sister, or there's three Marys and Jesus' aunt that are there. And we know, according to Scripture, that there is more to the family of Jesus than just his mother. In fact, we know that his earthly father, Joseph, actually kind of passes from the biblical record after Jesus visits the temple when he was 12. So we suspect that Jesus probably went through the loss of his father, Joseph, when he was a teenager or in his early 20s. We know according to Mark 6, 3, that Jesus had at least four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And we know that he had at least two sisters. Mark 6, 3 tells us he had sisters, plural. And so we can see from this that there were at least nine nuclear members of Jesus' family. Joseph, Mary, seven children, Jesus, four brothers and at least two sisters. And out of that original group, only two are at the cross, and one of them is on the cross. One of the two is his mother. We later know that Jesus' brothers, at least two of them, would come to faith. But Jesus, on this particular instance, does not refer to Mary as mother. 
he refers to her as woman. And we look at that and believe that the reason being is that Jesus needs her to see him in a different eye. This isn't just my son. This is my Savior. I see him dying for the sins of the world. And in that moment, moving out of his pain and into her pain, which is the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of the life that we live with him, is so often he moves out of that into our pain. And Jesus moves out of his grief into her grief, and he lets her know in that moment, woman, I'm going to give you somebody to take care of you. And John, you now have responsibilities. You who have leaned on my chest, now this woman needs to lean on you. And he took care of her. The fourth word that he mentioned from the cross is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know, as I was trying to think as I was preparing this week, I don't know of any words in the human language to describe the depth of the feeling of this cry from Jesus. All of us have been in situations where there, the limitations of language keep us from being able to express the depth of the feeling, and I believe that this is one of those times. The intensity of his cry is matched only by the darkness with which is now draped over this crucifixion scene. It surely is symbolic that the sun couldn't shine upon such a scene of the crucifixion of its creator. The darkness lasted three hours, and it was an outward sign of the darkness that is now wrapping itself around the soul of Jesus. Wave after wave after wave of evil swept over his consciousness. All of the sin of the world, the awful legacy left by the fall of mankind, was laid upon Jesus at this moment as he's hanging on the cross. And we are described, it's described to us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, it was the great exchange that was taking place for us. And even in this verse in 2 Corinthians, there is a choice that is implied here. The action of God requires a decision because He was made sin for us that in Him we might become the righteousness. It doesn't happen automatically. You don't automatically go to heaven. You're not automatically made righteous. You have to choose it. You have to choose to receive what He has done for you. And at the moment of this tremendous passion when the atonement of our sins was necessary, even His Father had to turn His head because of the ugliness of what we have placed upon Him. And in that moment... He was made sin for all of the eternity of mankind. Everything was placed upon him, the punishment of the sinner, and he being separated from God, his humiliation was complete. And how Jesus felt as his loud cry broke the silence, changed destiny, we cannot know. Because never before and never again would one who could bear our sins stand forsaken by the Father. And yet in the middle of all this, he never quit being my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He was carrying out the Father's will, carrying out his purpose of atoning sin, because this is about us. This is about us. 
John 19, 28 mentions the next words of Jesus when He said, I thirst. You see, the hours of torture, the hours of the beating that He had received, the humiliation begin to take a toll. In fact, I was reminded this week of a movie that came out some time ago called The Passion of the Christ, and I saw the commercials of that again, and as I saw the, the physical description that the movie's makers showed of how deplorably beat up Jesus' body was, I just had to stop because it's such a powerful reminder of what I cost Him and what you cost Him. You see, His suffering was real. And if execution had been by a firing squad, it would have been quick. But this was not sudden. It was long and it was drawn out. It was a lingering death under the sun and his wounded hands and feet would quickly become swollen and a fever would start and his body would begin to be dehydrated. All of his sufferings were real. And although he was completely divine, he also was completely human. And he felt the emotion and every pain that was laid upon his body the way we would feel them. And even as he was suffering... Scripture was fulfilled and the prophecy was fulfilled found in Psalm 69:20 that they gave me vinegar for my thirst. And Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. And it's interesting that in that moment when he was so thirsty, his lips would have been dried and cracked out that in order to prepare for the final two words, he needed to have his lips moistened, even if it was with vinegar. Because there was two powerful words yet for him to utter. And the sixth one was this. It is finished. It is finished. In fact, the sixth word, if you were to look at it in Greek, is really just one word, finished. It's accomplished. It was with a loud cry, and you can only imagine that whatever strength was left within his body as he's hanging there, he's dehydrated, he can barely breathe, and, and he lifts up just enough to be able to make it loud enough for people to hear. And over this ghastly scene, he cries out, It is finished! What does it mean when Jesus said it was finished? Was he referring to the suffering of his life's work? Certainly, I believe that that was a part of it, but I also believe that he was recognizing that it was the end of an era. You see, the Old Testament contains a long list of prophetic utterances, beginning with the first family of mankind, when God told the serpent in the Garden of Eden that he was going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. But it was the greatest conquest that that was being canceled in the cry of Jesus proclaiming victory over the evil one. It is finished. Notice that he didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. It was a shout of victory over sin and over death and over hell. In fact, Crucifixion is the only death by which a person could remain alive long enough to bear the sins of the world. It was the only method by which our Lord could bear the sins and the suffering in agony for three hours and then choose to die. All of the other methods, the executioner sets the time of death, but with the crucifixion, the Lord set the time of His own death. And in that fulfills Scripture. In John 10, 17 and 18, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I will choose my death. Philippians 2, 8, 
And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even on the cross. So the Lord chose the form of death, recognizing it would fulfill everything that he needed to do. And in a final loud cry, he cries out, paid in full. It's paid in full. And the word of the cross is finished. It was a finish to the rituals of Jewish religion. They had served their purpose as a holding operation until the appointed Messiah came. It was a finish to the sacrifices and ceremonies of the Old Testament uh, that were in order to kill sheep and lambs and goats and doves. Jesus now had taken over and had made that useless. It was finished. The work of redemption was done. It was accomplished. Jesus offered himself instead of you and me. All that was required to pay the justice of the world was done. It is finished. The Word tells us that there's nothing left for man to do but enter into the results of Christ's finished work. Jesus said, it is finished. You see, Jesus paid the price for our redemption, and He obtained an open door for each of us today to make a decision because this is about us. And then seventh, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The first word from the cross that we mentioned a few moments ago was when he said, Father, forgive. Now Jesus has come to the end, and just before he is to pass, he mentions the Father again. From the Father he had come, and from the Father he would return. But he first had to die physically. These tell us that his life did not just ebb away. And so it was that Jesus consciously gave his life. He consciously laid it upon the altar. And he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This speaks of the confidence that he had in Father God. He found security in his Father's hands and in doing so pointed the way for all of us. You see, we see a little bit later on that Stephen, when he was martyred, said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I don't know how many times through the years in ministry I've sat by the bedside of those that were in their final moments of life and holding them by the hands they were saying together, Father, I commit my spirit into your hands because I have lived in such a way that I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and now I'm about to enter into the glory. You see, there's something different about death for the believer because we recognize God has opened a door. And Jesus showed us the way. Father, I'm commending my spirit, which will live forever, into your hands. Our security in heaven is found at the cross. Have you been to the cross? You see, what he did there was for us. What he did there gives us hope. And in these wonderful words of Jesus from the cross, he speaks to us. Let them feed your soul when he said, Father, forgive them because there's forgiveness for you at the cross. Today you will be with me because there's salvation for you at the cross. Woman, here's your son because there's love for you at the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because there's atonement for you at the cross. I thirst because Jesus suffered for you at the cross. It is finished. Jesus was the victor over sin for you at the cross. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit because there is eternal joy that awaits all of us at the cross. Christ won it all for us at the cross. Would you stand with me, please?
as we sing this together. our elders if you'd make your way to the front those who are part of our prayer team Jesus went to the cross so that we might have a personal relationship with God and know the power of his life in every area of our lives when we speak of the cross we're not just talking about two rough boards that were placed together suspended in a section we're talking about the place where Jesus did all the work for us because the cross was about us. He suffered as no one ever suffered for you and for me. The cross is about Jesus becoming our Savior. And there's no holier place and there's no greater hope than the cross as the place where heaven's love and earth's justice meet. And Jesus did it because it's all about you. It's all about you.